difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, and Keith Epps. In our last episode, we discussed Ron Shelton's White Men Can't Jump, a mismatched buddy comedy about two streetball hustlers who make a living outside professional basketball circles. Today, we'll be discussing High Flying Bird, the latest digital experiment from director Steven Soderbergh, which debuted on Netflix in early February. High Flying Bird is a Moonlight reunion of sorts. Scripted by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who wrote the play on which Moonlight was based, the film stars Andre Holland as Ray Burke, an agent who has the number one pick in the draft as a client, but doesn't have a league for him to play in. Negotiations between team owners and the players' union on a collective bargaining agreement have broken down, so there's a lockout keeping the season from starting. The owners are in no hurry to resolve the dispute because they're fabulously wealthy. Some of the players, however, are not so fortunate. In the opening scene, for example, Ray chastises his rookie star for taking a high-interest bridge loan to make ends meet until he starts making his millions. But the reality for players on the lower end of the pay scale is that they can't afford an extended lockout as easily as the billionaire owners can. So Ray quietly hatches a plan to bring some power back to the athletes who, after all, are the reason people care about the game in the first place. We'll talk about that behind-the-scenes intrigue after the break. You want to get back on the court? And that's your agent. I want to get you there. But we are in a lockout. There are no actual games to watch. You think these fools... These rich white dudes gonna let these sexiest sport fall by the wayside. This team's my family. I need us to be one big family again. Football is fun, but it don't sell sneakers. To move merch and inspire rap lyrics, they need your services. The NBA won control of a game that we played. We played better. They invented a game. On top of a game. I see a whole infrastructure that put the control back in the hands of those behind the ball. What you gonna do? But I'm about to pull up a chair. My God ain't right. We're at the height of the information era. We need a story. What are you doing, man? This is my career. You have a chance, sir, to do what has never been done before. Come on, man. Give him the rock. I don't wanna do that. This is the matchup everyone's been dying to see. Be not. 24 million people saw the video. You're not thinking of breaking up our happy marriage. What you saw yesterday was just the beginning. Oh man, this is getting crazy. Of what could be a whole new industry. He's up to something. You did all that. You know the lead with a black ball. We scared. We don't need the lead. We are disruptors. It's your game now. You were born for way more than this. Okay, so we have yet we have another Steven Soderbergh film. They they come pretty fast and furious. I wanted to get everyone's opinions. What did you think 
of High Flying Bird. Keith Phipps. I was really into it. I mean, it kind of grabbed me right away with that opening scene with those brilliant dialogue and, and the power dynamic between between uh, the agent and, and the player and the way that played out. It was so well done and it kind of like, I don't necessarily fully understand, you know, didn't really understand the ins and outs of the lockout and bridge loans and, and what it means to be an NBA rookie. But by the end of the scene, I at least had a sense of what it meant to these people. And from there on, I just kind of pushed me through the whole movie, which took some twists and turns. I don't, I think there's some some odd moments and some sort of um, not quite fully developed themes and relationships, but uh, but it was still like you know I didn't know where it was going and and, and uh, uh, it had me from the beginning and kept me to the end and maybe interested in learning at least a little bit more about basketball and basketball <laughs> history, Scott. Oh, well, that's exci- that's really that's exciting for me, Keith. I uh, about like. Yeah, 10, 15 minutes into this, I turned to my fiance and was like, wait, so just checking, what's a lockout? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I was right. It's, you know, it's basically well, a strike. Explain, but to, I people, explain to, uh, to the people what yeah. a lockout is. I mean, it's it's basically, it's kind of a strike, not a strike. It, uh, it was a work stoppage, right? Yeah, except what the, the difference is that players go on strike, owners right. initiate a lockout. Right. That's it. Yeah. But anyway, as to what I thought of this movie, um, I agree that like the first scene did really kind of hook me in, and there's a lot to this story I really like and found compelling and like curious to know more about. A lot of the, perhaps you might call them the fundamentals of, of the movie, didn't work for me. I, I was actually not a fan of a lot of the dialogue in this movie, Keith, and boy, did I not like the iPhone cinematography like at all. Mm. And and I debate whether it would have bothered me as much if I hadn't known about it. And I, I, I think I, I would have noticed like there are several shots in this movie that just look off and it is 100% because of the, the iPhone cinematography. And I think it does speak to the fact that there is no basketball playing in this movie, which your mileage may vary on whether that's a feature or a bug. To me, it's a bug. And I think it is, to an extent, directly related to the choice to film this on iPhone cameras because, you know, that would be pro- presumably a lot harder to shoot a, a basketball game that way than it would be to uh, do a bunch of, you know, two-person conversations, which is what a lot, a lot, a lot of this movie is. But, you know, like I said, I think the story was compelling. I was engaged with the movie all the way through, but it didn't really knock me out in the way that I, I would have liked it to. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't engage very well with it either. I feel like that first scene is just such a powerhouse of uh, of emotions. You come to understand the the dynamic there between those two men and the power relationship between them and the stakes as the scene plays out in a way that for me just doesn't really correspond to the rest of the film. Like so much of the film just feels like the problems are pretty abstract. You know, we're told that Eric has a loan that he is struggling to deal with. We're told that, you know, there are a lot of people who are being hurt by the lockout, but we don't see it in much of an intimate way. Like mostly we see it through the fact that Ray can't use his credit cards and he he has no cash in his wallet. Like Ray is is obviously struggling and in part he's struggling because he's been setting aside money for his own clients. Uh, in order to get them through this kind of thing. So we know that he cares about his people, but we don't necessarily know why that's important. There's so many things in this movie to me where the like the the importance of things, the stakes feel kind of vague and the steps being taken to ameliorate the problem seem kind of vague. And in the end, we're kind of told that Ray's like pulled off something brilliant and clever and outside the box. 
but it never really feels like that. You know, Soderbergh has done so many heist movies. Mm. We're used to seeing the mechanics of the heist as this kind of exciting thing. And here it's kind of more like, you know, if Danny Ocean spent the entirety of all three Ocean's movies sitting in one-on-ones in rooms with people, like talking quietly about things he was thinking about doing. And then at the end he was like, oh, and by the way, I robbed that casino in a way nobody has ever done before. And I'm brilliant (laughs) and I should be, I'm rich now. And it's like, well, we didn't see any of that happen just as we don't see any ball played in the movie, which I think is really puckish of Soderbergh. I think it's hilarious. It's almost the comedy equivalent of Michael Haneke refusing to show you violence in funny games and blaming you for wanting to see it. I feel like Soderbergh keeps going, now we're going to have some awesome basketball. (laughs) It's like... In the end, I didn't mind that, but I did want some sort of like clear action, like some sort of clear dynamic, some sort of reason to be emotionally engaged with anything going on in this movie. And I generally didn't get it. And I'm with Genevieve. I hated the iPhone cinematography. This movie looks so much better than Unsane did, Soderbergh's previous iPhone movie. Uh, and whenever, whenever the lighting conditions are right, whenever it's a brightly lit space that's equally lit, it looks like sharp and clear and, and more or less perfect. Whenever you have a situation where part of the room is dark and part of the room is light, everybody's faces disappear. Everything is, uh, is blown out and fuzzy. All of the scenes with Zachary Quinto and Andre Holland sitting in Quinto's office, to, to me, it's like, where are their faces? And I don't think this would be so much part of the narrative if Soderbergh wasn't making such a huge deal mm. out of using the iPhone and how, how much freedom he's given and how it's changed everything about how he approaches movies. And if he wasn't known as a fantastic cinematographer, yeah. you know, he's made it so much part of the narrative that it's hard to forget. And it's especially hard to forget when you have these scenes where the two men are sitting in the restaurant, everything looks fantastic. And then the camera changes angle and suddenly everything's dark and blurry. I, I, I'm a dope, and I actually didn't know it was a shot on an iPhone before I saw it. And it didn't bother me. It, it, it certainly looked better than Unsane, but I also believe I watched this movie entirely on an iPad. So I'm looking yes. at a much smaller screen. <laughs> I know, I know. It was just a matter of, of I needed to, to watch it at a certain place at a certain time. Um, so that might make a difference there. But I think there is a conceptual defense of this, and it is sort of a film about these people who are fast and loose and on the go and in the moment. And uh, a lot of it's about how the relationships, how the power dynamics between players plays out on social media. So I think there is sort mm-hmm. of a, a form-fitting content thing going on here. I'm not sure that's always as pleasant to the eye as it could be, but I don't think it's necessarily at odds with the material either. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I just don't like the way it looks at all. I, I, I can I can picture the scene in my head. It's when uh, Andre Holland and so- I think Sonia Sohn are at a at a bar. The shot is set up in this way so that the three like rocks glasses full of garnishes are like really, really foregrounded and they're in the background. And it's this like wide angle to get them both in there. And it just like the depth of it looks off the color looks off the lighting looks off like everything just looks wrong to me uh, and i 
I did not like it at all. <laughs> I, I, I actually like that shot though. It was so, <laughs> like, it was I, so funky. I, I think it was it was because like it was a like a, a framing that really called attention to itself that I, sure. I that I noticed it, but then I noticed all the things I didn't like about it. But anyway, that's nitpicking one scene uh, just as an example of sort of something I didn't like more broadly. But to go back to something Tasha was saying about there being like some sort of heist energy that we're not getting or, or you know that there's a, a reveal kind of that we don't get the part that bugged me was the 48 hours earlier cut which felt like so Soderberghian and like felt very much you know of, of a Ocean's 11 type device and it had like no real payoff when it happens like okay now we're kicking into second gear here but it felt like we just like went back in time and stayed in the same year you know just the endless series of conversations element of this movie really kind of grated on me after a while yeah scott you really liked it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i was like it's like i'm curious if, uh, what, well you already got to recommend it last week i guess i like this film quite uh, quite a bit more than everyone else i'm in this weird position of being someone who has broadcast a lot of disdain and skepticism toward shooting a film on an iPhone, uh, which I enjoyed in Tangerine, but uh, in other cases, not so much, uh, especially when you have a director like Soderbergh who doesn't have to shoot it on iPhone. He can shoot it with anything mm-hmm. he wants. I think there is a, a formal defense that Keith brought up that makes sense with regard to the content of the film, which mm-hmm. is that which is it is a film about disruption uh, in the tools of disruption. One of those tools is the phone is it's social Mm -hmm. media. It's the ability to take this little piece of basketball that we do get that's being shot on a phone and completely upending this entire sporting universe. This entire multi-billion dollar enterprise can be shattered by a phone. And Mm -hmm. so I think there's a, I think that is kind of the spirit of the film. That is the spirit which animates, you know, Soderbergh's wanting to make it. I think that's kind of like the, 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 the purpose of the film. So I think that justifies the use of the iPhone to a degree um, but of course, the other part of it is that it's not aesthetically not pleasing. To quote, that's my favorite to quote from uh, Project Runaway. What's her uh, Nina Garcia always yeah. says? says uh, use the use the phrase once. It's, it's aesthetically not pleasing, and I, I like to use that a lot. And that that's that's kind of what this movie is. It makes me. I, I for the longest time, it's it goes way back for me with Soderbergh when he started taking over as photographers of his own movies under the pseudonym Peter Andrews. I think he does a fine job. I like the way his films look. Um, I liked them better when he had Elliot Davis and Ed Lockman and actual cinematographers shooting his movies, but that's kind of not the way things have gone, and I get it. I get it, but I miss it, and seeing a film like High Flying Bird makes me miss it a little bit more. But to speed, to keep going, to keep, as far as my opinion of the movie, uh, I, I think it's one of his better films of late. I, I, I really enjoy it. I like that there's a lot of talk. I like the way the film sort of drops that ending on you where he's just like, you see what's happening, don't you? <laughs> You know what just happened? I just, I just think, think I like that the, the heist element of it. And it is kind of a heist movie is played out a little more subtly than you than a, than a Logan Lucky or a, or any of the Ocean's films. So I, I appreciated that aspect of it. It was immensely satisfying to see him pull it off. But I think there's something in in this something we can, we can bring up in connections because it is also something you praised about White Men Can't Jump is that High Flying Bird really isn't that interested in giving uh, viewers a whole lot of like rope. It, it's going to do its thing and it's not going to over explain anything. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know 
of what a lockout is. And if you're not really all that familiar with the power dynamics of professional sports and that, and those, the kinds of issues that the film is really digging into, it's maybe going to lessen your appreciation or even understanding of the things that are going on. I'm I'm going to, I'm going to push back against okay. that because I think that this movie has several instances where it over explains itself. Mm. That, that ending scene being one of them, like I got what he was doing. Like I, I didn't need that explained to me. And it, it felt like, the version of again to go back to oceans 11 where it kind of like pans out and you see how everything worked but you're just seeing it happen here you're just being told how it all worked you know mm-hmm. and like maybe a gap get, or gets filled in here or there but that just felt like underlining something that i had already grasped at that okay. point and but i also wanted to point out where that over explaining uh, instinct really struck me was with the um the slavery reference little thing that they that they do when i love the lord and all his black people thing that uh ray and spence do between them whenever there's a whenever one of them references slavery like the first time it happened it's like oh and then it happens again and you're like oh and then it happens again you're like okay i get what they're doing here you know (laughs) i've I've put together that they're every time there's a slavery reference they they say this and this is all tied into this broader theme of the movie and how the nba has arguably enslaved (laughs) black athletes to a certain extent like i get that and i was fine with it and then like two-thirds of the movie we have that scene where they just flat out explain it to sonia stone's character and it's kind of funny like her reaction to it is funny but it just like took all the wind out of that that running gag to me mm-hmm. you know so there were moments like that throughout the movie where i felt like it was over explaining itself maybe not in relation to the specifics of basketball and, and the industry yeah but uh, the dialogue a lot of times did not work for me here. It's pretty and wonky then, though, right? I mean, it's a pretty yeah. wonky film. And then at the same time though, in a different corner, like I understand what a lockout is. I understand that uh, part of the problem that is being addressed here is rich white people controlling a sport that in some ways like dominates the life of a bunch of poor black people who stand to become millionaires if the white, the white people will let them. Like I understand all those dynamics and I understand that what Ray is pulling off is finding ways for people to play basketball and profit without the owners being involved and in getting a, a cut of the pie. What I don't understand and I don't think the movie really explains at all is how they're doing that. Like if they have contracts that don't let them profit from basketball and they're going off and doing these events and saying, you know, this is a charity, we're not getting paid, but they're still getting paid paid for basketball. It seemed like a a very hair-splitting dodge of the rules in a way that wasn't narratively satisfying, that didn't bring across any any feeling of triumph. Maybe because we didn't get to see them play the game and there was mm. we we get a lot of talk about the joy of being able to play and about, you know, these especially the two like younger players, you know, getting to do what they're good at and then we don't get to see them doing what they're good at. What we, what we see is like the old white rich men talking about a bunch of events that have been scheduled. Mm-hmm. And it's like, <laughs> it's like having somebody read a, a calendar of sports events to you instead of watching the game be played. <laughs> like I wasn't, I wasn't clear on exactly how they were dodging the legalistic language in a contract we never see to make these things possible. And it wasn't exciting that that they managed to do that. 
like it's it's like a courtroom scene where you never enter a courtroom and somebody just like spells out like here are the details of a contract that we signed but here is a loophole that i found that is going to allow me to do this thing that you don't want me to do so so what <laughs> okay uh yeah i, I mean uh, you know I mean, for, for one i think the approach is obviously pretty deliberate on soderbergh's part to do a sports movie without sports in it i Certainly. mean and, the, and I, I think we get a glimpse here of how he would have handled moneyball if he if, if given the opportunity because this is a very mm-hmm. wonky behind the scenes you know detail oriented thing and he's brought in i think i think to a, gr- a great benefit actual nba players reggie jackson uh carl anthony towns and donovan Mitchell, who are young, up-and-coming sort of NBA superstars, as themselves to kind of talk about their experiences in the league. And I just think that adds all these layers and all this sort of richness to it. But there's something very fundamental in professional sports, particularly the NBA, and especially the NFL. Uh, fo- uh, football is so mm-hmm. much worse, where it's yeah. like you've got, you've got uh, a sport that is that where people are showing up to, play, to see mostly black athletes play, and it is being controlled everything's being dictated by billionaire uh, white owners. And it's like, how do you leverage that? I mean, and, and I think the, the film is an interesting fantasy of how you might do that. Of just like, you have the tools now to break off from the formalist aspects of a league and deliver action straight to fans without needing owners to kind of come in and control everything. And so, so it was kind of exciting to me to see a, a fantasy of that happening in this film of this agent who is able to to just by teasing the idea of these star players squaring off for money and for and for an audience outside of the parameters of the league and all that money being made by the players and the agents and not and not the owners that was enough to get the owners back to the table i mean that seemed like a fairly plausible and kind of exciting fantasy to me. I just don't understand where you make the connection between I, I like I understand the whole mechanic of this is being presented through social media and the owners can't control that because that's something we all live with in our daily lives. I understand the dynamic of we're withholding this from the audiences that want it and that makes it a rare and precious thing. I don't see where you get from an NBA game that is potentially being televised for millions of people people and that the players stand to make millions of dollars on their contracts can somehow be replaced by like financially in the lives of these poor men who who's like you know penury and loans we're dealing with could somehow be replaced by playing for a small audience of people like in a gymnasium somewhere it it's presented as we've fixed it financially by putting the money in the hands of the players where it belongs but that money is just not anything like the same scale. Like how much are those people playing to see that sport in that gymnasium that it could possibly fix Eric's money problem? I think the idea of the film is arguing that it's not the same amount of money and that's okay. I think part of the film's argument, especially with the reveal of the book at the end, the revolt of the black athlete, I think it is dancing around the argument that in attaching these, you know, huge sums of money to this game, it has entrapped players to a certain extent and created a system that allows them to be manipulated through the expectation of that kind of money. And so I think maybe the idea behind this league is a stepping back from that assumption in favor of a fundamental love of the game, you know, the proverbial love of the game. That is all a terrific idea that was 
not really thematically expressed, even in a movie that's just mostly about people having conversations <laughs> about the business of basketball. So I just I thought it was just something much just a tease of just like we don't need you. Just so just like that tiny little thread of just like we can take the athletes are what people are showing up for. We can get them together and we can have our own damn thing. It's enough of a threat to prompt some action. I believe in the context of this film. I have no uh, – and I, I, I felt like the film was reflecting the real-world realities of the sport, which I don't know that well. But but uh, how far into fantasy land are we with this movie, Scott? You can probably address that better than anybody else. I think we're reasonably far. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but what's what kind of what's intriguing to me about it is that the NBA is by far the most progressive sports league there is. I mean, in by far the healthiest league there is. And so for that structure to be under attack really kind of tells you what things are like in the sports world in general because something like the NFL is much dicier yeah. with the kneeling issue and the way that played out. Yeah, but in terms of plausibility, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I think it is a fantasy of disruption that the film, re- I think, realizes in a satisfying way, and you all think <laughs> less so, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I didn't strongly dislike this movie. I just had, I think, more problems with it than you know pleasure I found in it. But um, you know, it was. It was not a waste of time. I don't feel. Yeah, that's it exactly. I mean, I didn't dislike it. I wasn't repulsed by it. I just I've come to hold Soderbergh in particular to a pretty high standard because the highs of his movies are so high. I liked it. I'll put it. I'll put it right in the middle of his filmography, I guess, or maybe you know, uh, yeah, somewhere in the middle. Okay. Well, uh, well, we'll be right back to talk more about High Flying Bird in relation to White Men Can't Jump after the break. I went back down there the summer before high school, and Gavin had been shot up to 6-6. A mango season, they called it. All you need is a mango season, and everything will change. And it did. Everybody was coming down there to see him play. Now, I guess that's the part where y'all expect me to say that I was jealous. Oh, I was. But not of him. Now, yeah, I couldn't be jealous of that fool. No, I was jealous of the cast that got to play him. Gavin loved, loved this game. He was thankful to God for his height and his talent, and, and then he lost all that. He lost that love, and then he left the game. He lost his life. Y'all don't lose that love. All right? Even if your... Even if your mango season ain't come, won't come, past, hold on to that love. It'll get you through. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I think the first thing and the reason this pairing was suggested in the first place was that both films operate outside the structure and the formal aspects of an actual of a league outside the NBA which is not even the NBA is certainly mentioned in White Men Can't Jump but not I, is I, much of my named in High Flying Bird I don't think so and I was wondering if that was maybe just to get around some rights issue or something I think it was, I, I think it was sort of an anonymous League. Both of these movies are outside the NBA, but in very different ways because the a high flying bird is 
circling the NBA. Like it's centered on the idea of the NBA, even though its story takes place outside of actual games being played in that league. In White Men Can't Jump, it seems to like just not even be a consideration like in these characters' lives outside of like a reference to Jordan here or there, but there's no like aspiration element for these characters. You know, even Billy's character, you know, who played college ball and presumably might have had an inkling at one point that he might play like it doesn't really seem to be affecting his current day-to-day life the idea of a, a dream of a something quote bigger and better but i think you could almost say that this venice beach scene is kind of a shadow league you know in in, in these this, that tournament is sort of a all of this action that is that is on the outside on the perimeter off the you know outside the perimeters of what we understand to be as pro level basketball well and and there is a little part at the beginning uh, it may have just been big talk on sydney's part but you know he's he's has that little bit about jordan coming and playing you know <laughs> playing on the courts you know and i think from what we know of sydney it's we can assume that that uh, is just talk on his part mm-hmm. but also it's kind of easy to believe that this is a scene that professional players might want to pop into now and then and kind of see where their skills stack up against this very different form of of basketball. So, you know, the movie doesn't go there, but it definitely presents a world in which that is a, a like a believable scenario, I think. Though I would say I guess I I would say that it's kind of too rough and tumble and too sort of funky for a professional player. I mean, you, you, there's so when, when yeah. you reach that level, you care so much about your body and not getting injured right. and not making yourself, putting yourself in a vulnerable situation of playing on concrete, yeah. you know, with a bunch of guys shoving you and they'll Maybe be Maybe it's where fouls. a retired player shows up to relive <laughs> yeah, his but glory I've, days. I've seen it. I mean, you see, you see, you see scenes of like, you know, there was a, some footage of um, this player named Joel Embiid out on the outdoor courts a little bit this summer. So it does happen. But one thing I think, relevant to both films is once you're outside the NBA, uh, the issue of money becomes important mm-hmm. uh, because it, because it's obviously they're, these in white men can jump. They're hustlers and that's how they make their, their cash is on the court. Um, but, you know, right away in high flying bird money is a problem because you have a lot of players who are not in that super high upper echelon of max contracts, you know, are maybe living beyond their means or they don't have, um, that you know, it's, they can't survive. You know, a multi-month lockout without there being some some consequences to their lifestyle, and without them making some pretty hard and maybe not so uh, advisable choices. So, it's clearly, what High Flying Bird needed was a moment where Eric goes down to finish speech and just starts like hustling people for cash because <laughs> you know he's not in the NBA yet. He uh, he doesn't have a huge name. Like people are aware he's a top draft choice, but he might still be able to fly under the radar, especially if he had a doofy looking white partner. Uh, but it is interesting how both films kind of navigate uh, the the same space of desperate for money, desperate to get out of a situation. And even though like one person is like young and at the beginning of his career and has a lucrative contract and is just waiting to like to hit the majors. And then you've got two people who are just kind of like scrambling to get by and and get out of their ratty apartments slash hotels. The dynamic still seems very, very similar in both cases, you know, that, that desperation and that hunger and that conviction that an inborn skill combined with a hell of a 
a lot of practice is something that they should be able to make money at. You know, they've, they have devoted their lives to this one thing. Like, why can't they make a living at it? Why can't people get out of their way and let, just let them make money? One of the elements of being outside the NBA is, you know, an independent spirit, really. And that I think you could say animates both of these films and both the sense of outsidership in both the films is almost kind of a matter of pride uh, or something that, that is uh, embraced uh, by Ron Shelton and by Steven Soderbergh, no? Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, you don't want to take this too far because it diminishes what the movie is actually actually about. But, there, you know, others have pointed out how much uh, they're sort of a using my wit and new technology to disrupt the system uh, meta text mm-hmm. to uh, to High Flying Bird is what Soderbergh has been trying trying to do as, as well. Someone who's clearly not comfortable within the limitations of, of a studio system. So there's that as well. And like White Man Can Jump was, was a studio production, but it's an unusual sort of studio production. I was just thinking about how unusual some of the elements of it were in a comedy at that time. I mean, these sort of, I'm not sure they're the, the deepest discussions of pop culture, but getting sort of detailed discussions of George Jones versus Jimi Hendrix in a mainstream movie. It's not something you really saw that much before Pulp Fiction and then he saw it, you know, just just everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think there is, to, to, to coin a phrase, an independent spirit to both of these films in, in different ways. Well, as a matter of, of pretty strong contrast, I want to, I think we should talk about the style of both of these films because Soderbergh, uh, of course, shot High Flying Bird on digitally on an iPhone, and Ron Shelton shot his movie on film, and they look—they could not look more different. They—they <laughs> they really couldn't look more. Well, why didn't Ron Shelton use an iPhone? They really couldn't look more different in terms of of like color and lighting and the spaces that they're in, and the camera placement, which Shelton kind of I think uses a lot more kind of classical camera placements, kind of getting back from the action and often holding a long time on a shot in part to establish that those really are Snipes and Harrelson doing those shots. During the early shootout between Sydney and Billy, there's a point where the camera holds on Harrelson, like making that free throw shot and nothing but net. And then it bounces back. And then there's a bunch of banter. And then Snipes takes his shot and hits it and turns. And we like, we, we see in both cases, like this is the actual actor doing this. And we see the whole thing play out as a single shot to show that there wasn't any trickery in both of them making those shots. And there are a few shots like that in the movie, but for the most part, it's, it's much more conventional, uh, like as an action movie, quick shots, quick camera movements, staying in close on the bodies during the action and like pulling back a bit for other more personal scenes. High Flying Bird, Soderbergh has talked a lot about the freedom that the iPhone gets him and there were times the the bar shot is one of them, but there's also just the conversation in the restaurant where suddenly the camera is like way up above the table, mm-hmm. looking down on one conversational participant and then the other that just I could hear Soderbergh saying, "Ooh, I can get the camera up here now. <laughs> oh, I can put it over here now. Like, oh, what, what if we drop it way down here? And it, it's so distracting. It seems so ridiculously showy. Yeah. Well, he also breaks uh, 
the plane at one in the first scene. Uh, what do they call it? The one hundred and eighty degree plane, where mm. it, where the two yeah. characters are on one side of the frame, and then it switches. You're not supposed to do that. It's a oh, Zoo does it all the time, I guess, but <laughs> but uh, or did it all the time. He's not alive. Soderbergh kind of does that for the, in I think an unmotivated way. Just he just does it. I think it's motivated by like his his giddiness at his freedom. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that, I don't count that as motivation. <laughs> so I, I guess ultimately that the case for the old-fashioned way of doing things lies from the fact that, that the shots I remember most clearly from High Flying Bird were the funky ones we're kind of talking about just now, which I like, but uh, you know others don't. And, and then also that, that horrible shot of Kyle McLaughlin blowing the sun out of his nose. Um, but <laughs> there's so many images that stuck with me from White Men Can't Jump. The cinematographer is Russell Boyd, who's Peter Weir's long, long time cinematographer. So he shot like Picnic and Hanging Rock and, and so on and so forth. And, and you can really see that in that opening scene at Venice Beach, which is that early morning mist mm-hmm. hanging over it. Good Lord, that's such a great shot. And, and the shots of some of the, the, the court at Watts that seems to exist just sort of on its own next to the, um, next to the train station and the way that's framed, the isolation of it and, and, and the way it kind of com- comes a world unto itself. I mean, it's just, it's a really great looking movie. And I, I think some of the stylistic, stylistic choices there really uh, make it more memorable than it would have been uh, otherwise. Yeah. Uh, Tasha, you briefly mentioned the, the spaces of these two movies being very different and, uh, you know, setting aside camera work and camera placement, like, that is really where I prefer White Man Can't Jump style. Like I just feel like this world is so much more visually compelling than the world of High Flying Bird, which is a lot of like offices and sterile seeming restaurants. And, you know, there's the the gymnasium we come back to a few times, which, you know, arguably has a little more personality to it, but it's still I really enjoy of... the the sound design in those gymnasium scenes where you can just hear the the people who are running laps, you can hear the squeaking of the shoes just perpetually in the background. Yeah. yeah. I mean they're they're not I don't want to say like the spaces in High Flying Bird are bad. I just find them a lot blander than the ones in White Men Can't Jump. Even like they are you know, setting aside the the basketball scenes, like that motel room that uh, Billy and Gloria are living in with like that weird shower mm-hmm. and, you know, and there's just so much chaos in that in that room that comes through and Billy and Sydney like up against that graffitied wall, you know, that mm-hmm. beautiful sort of mural, you know, there's just, it's a lot more visually dynamic to me than the sort of more beige, brown, navy blue world of High Flying Bird. And the costuming goes into that a lot. Costuming and and sunlight. You know, Venice Beach is just, you can feel the sun in a lot of that, that, a lot of that cinematography. You can feel the kind of sweaty warmth of running back and forth on a court, uh, you know, under, under fairly oppressive physical circumstances with people like constantly grabbing and pushing at you. Uh, it just, it feels very visceral in an interesting way. And you have the scene where Gloria's roller skating in circles Excuse around. Excuse me, those are roller blades. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. The scene where Gloria's rollerblading in circles around uh, Sydney and, and Billy as they have their conversation about the next step. There's just like, there's so much motion and life to the, the environment that they're in and to that world. And it reminds me like with the, the hustling going on and the uh, like emotional dynamic of, of these characters and like their little, either their little crimes that they're doing or the little crimes that they're suffering reminds me so much of like Elmore Leonard's looks at Florida. Hmm. It kind of just feels like, you know, a familiar seedy, sweaty place in a lot of ways. 
And then, as you say, High Flying Bird is uh, about boardrooms and offices. Yeah, it's like uh, White Men Can't Jump is like a sweaty movie, and High Flying Bird is an air-conditioned movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Soderbergh is just reflective of their styles, too. And the, I mean, Soderbergh yeah. is chi- a chilly, chilly kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's chilly, he's, he's wonky, he's setting this whole movie in boardrooms. And I think it's something that digital cameras can accommodate pretty well. I, 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 I wonder... You know, again, I hate to be that that sort of film snob, or because it makes me sound like one of those vinyl guys. Uh, but it's like there's a warmth, there's a there's a there's just a, a warmth to the look of white men can't jump that isn't present in High Flying Bird. And I wonder if you you know if you took a iPhone to the world of white men can't jump, I think it would be much worse for it because yeah. there's like there's such a that opening sequence like that you mentioned, Keith, just really so sets the tone of the film, sets the visual style of it gives you such a wonderful sense of the backdrop and you've got the guys uh, doing their acapella and it's just like a wonderful feel. You just immediately know that backdrop and understand the context by which all these characters are doing their, their, their hustling. It just all comes through so beautifully and visually. So we talked a lot in our previous episode about Rhonda and Gloria, the, the women of White Men Can't Jump, but we didn't get a chance to talk about the women in High flying bird and the role they play in that movie. So, Tasha, do you have some thoughts on that? Uh, they're very sharp. I mean, this is a, a movie with three different women of color who are all like sharp and ambitious and angry about the state of the world and want to like recreate it in a, a style that they have envisioned for themselves. But they all each have very different visions of it and very different personalities. And it's, it's weird because there is not a lot of, there's not a confrontation between them. There's not a point where they, they sit down and say like, this is what I want. This is what you want. In, in a way, their their characters remind me a lot of like the similar like sharp and ambitious women in Velvet Buzzsaw, but those women come up against each other very sharply. Here we have uh, Zazie Beetz and Emra Umber, the the mother of the other uh, big NBA pick, and uh, Myra, the players' rep, played by Sonia Sohn from uh, who was Kima in The Wire. Uh, each kind of navigating their own like worlds of here's here's what you're up against here are the barriers in your place each of them representing uh like a man or a bunch of men in their lives that they're going to bat for in a particular way mm-hmm. and just the immediacy and specificity of those characters interested me a lot now i do think it's funny that white men can't jump kind of has as a, a big emotional climax watching a woman play jeopardy and high flying bird has as a big emotional climax watching a woman sitting on a couch reading a book <laughs> I, I think that's a, a weird step between the two of them but Overall, I, I think both of these movies do a pretty good job of making their female characters into not strong female characters, into <laughs> characters with their own arcs and their own ambitions and their own goals and their own personalities. Yeah, I mean, they're all trying to, in High Flying Bird, they're all trying to leverage power in their own way, too, uh, and go, going after it. Um, and in the fact that, that the movie so, so. It follows a race so heavily and you still get three pretty strongly, pretty well realized supporting players uh, to the film's favor, I think. Yeah, no, I agree with everything Tasha said. And we'll just add that I love any opportunity to see Sonia Sohn in, in anything. And I think she's... Uh, and Zazie Beats. And Zazie Beats, yeah. Her, her character was interesting. It was a little hard for me to get a handle on her character for a lot of the film because she does kind of talk 
talk sideways a, a little bit or, or just lie like as a form of banter kind of you it's know it's also really unclear what her relationship with eric is yes. whether she's playing him or using him uh, either, you know, for financial reasons or leverage reasons, whether she wants to get close to him for some kind of scammy reason, or she's actually attracted to him, or she's just, you know, using him for sex, because why the heck not? He's like young and, and physically fit and attractive. So that's the one I like. That's that the one you like? Because the, yeah. see, there's a, yet well, yeah. another one on top of that. That's, that was my read on it. She's like, sure. he's like, he's kind of the, the, one of the funniest moments of the movie is he's kind of like, is when she just sort of cuts him off, like that's kind it, it like makes it clear that they're only gonna that, that is yeah. only gonna happen the once. Well, and there's that that scene between her and and Eric, which I think is a scene that was handled very well. That could have very easily gone wrong, where he, where they're kind of talking about the fact that they've slept together, and he's kind of like, "You didn't have to do that," you know. And it's like it's it's a very loaded statement, you know. And her just responding that no, I I wanted to, I did it because I I wanted to, <laughs> you know. It, it, it removes the implication of her being some sort of object in this game that he is playing. You know, she's playing her own game. And I think she makes that very clear in that moment. Yeah, a little like uh, Billy, he doesn't, Eric doesn't necessarily seem smart enough or sharp enough to, to play his own game exactly. Like, I don't think he has an agenda more than attractive woman wants to have sex. Yeah, and, you yep. know, he has not yet achieved the level of NBA fame where that's necessarily happened a lot. I'm sure it happened a lot in high school. But Sam is a grown-ass woman, as it were, and she's attractive and interested in him. And he's got, like, 20 minutes free, so why not? <laughs> Although that does get us another, like, really funny line in that movie, which where he's like, I, I, can't, I can't play. I just had sex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And he's so sheepish about it, just like, you know, and he's saying it in front of these, like, what, junior high schoolers, yeah. it looks like. Like, he yeah. doesn't want to make a deal out of it, but, but man, he he did just have sex. And he's not even singing the song. I just have sex. <laughs> <laughs> White Men Can't Jump is available on all the usual streaming services, and it's currently streaming on Stars. if you happen to be a subscriber. High Flying Bird is on Netflix, which where it will be for eternity. <laughs> uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. So finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show. In the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, I'm going to pass the ball to you first. <laughs> and I will receive that ball <laughs> and then lay it up for two points. That's, that's, what, that's, that's, what, that's what a layup is worth. Yes. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I do not have an, uh, an under-the-radar, off-the-beaten-path pick. But I think it's, it's one that maybe a lot of listeners might naturally go for, which is the final uh, film in the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Um, I'm a big fan of this series. And I don't know – it just by virtue of it being a non-Pixar, non-Disney animated film, uh, it, it's really gotten the – widespread respect it deserves. It's a really beautiful looking series, but also uh, as the third one makes clear, it makes clear it's telling a, a pretty complete coming of age story about a, a kid who's a misfit among these sort of uh, uh, Scottish accent Vikings uh, in some sort of fantasy uh, situation <laughs> where they're surrounded by dragons in the first film that they, they do, uh, they, 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 they fight to the death with until he realizes that 
Uh, they've misjudged the dragons all along. And that, you know, in itself, it, the first one, it's a really fine uh, story. Uh, it didn't necessarily need a sequel, but I think two and three have really taken it in some really interesting directions. And just visually, they're stunning looking. And, and, and by the end of it, the time you spent with these characters, it's, it's become quite moving. Uh, you know, I'm not going to spoil the end of this movie, but it, it is definitely a, a bring your Kleenex uh, sort, of, sort of film. I like the series a lot. I, I don't know that if you're not a parent or an animation buff, it's going to be something that you will have sought out. Uh, but I would recommend it. it, it so the, really the one DreamWorks series I feel is um, you, you can mention the same breath as some of the recent Pixar and uh, Disney films. And uh, I'm going to say uh, check check it out. But check it out in order. Don't just start with the third one. That's a, that's a bad Keith, idea. Keith, can you be the tiebreaker of a longstanding argument between Tasha and I? Is Toothless a cat or a dog? I, I I have thought about this a lot myself, and I, I think Toothless, who is the main dragon uh, of the film, uh, kind of combines the best elements of a dog. Oh, what a and diplomatic a answer! And, well, no, 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 and, no. And, I and for that matter, for a horse. But I would say this: superficially, there's a cat-like look to his eyes and face, but his behavior is almost all dog. Yeah, so I, I think I think I think where it counts, he's more dog. Than I'm going to rescind. Uh, like I'm, I'm, I have no idea what I've said in the past, but as of the third film, it is pretty clear that he's a cat dog horse, uh, that they've just kind of like with, with a, a good amount of like fish and a good amount of bird and lizard. There is a lot of just like, let's let's cram in everything that we think could possibly be like winsome or cute or fun and not really worry about, you know, he's a dragon. He's, yeah. he's not one of these specific things. There is an extended fetch sequence in how to train your dragon three that I, I, I mean, I had a cat that would play fetch, but it's still very clearly a, a dog move. So I think I'm gonna I'm gonna call this one on oh, account fine. of it's a dragon. It's <laughs> it's a it's an amalgam of everything they think you might like smushed together into a big messy play doh thing. I, I do like Toothless a lot. I think we're all fans of that franchise. For sure. Although, I had a lot of problems with the third one. Oh. I just again was on the slash film. Mm. podcast last night talking about it at great length so i won't get into it here but uh and you know i reviewed it for theverge.com uh where i laid out my my feelings about it i think that three is thematically muddled in some frustrating ways it's so gorgeous it's it's really worth seeing on the big screen and i've been hearing from a lot of people that have a deep emotional connection to these the series for various very good reasons so i'm not going to try to dissuade anybody from seeing it i do have some issues with it that's fair. Yeah, I haven't read your review yet. I, we can we can talk about it off off podcast, but uh, um, but that is that's interesting. It, it did strike me also that these ongoing franchises have become kind of a way to, to chart the passing of time <laughs> because like I I wasn't a dad when this first one came oh out. My. And I remember when the second one came out, I was I, my kid was too young to take her to, but then she got into them watching them at home. And this is a couple of years ago. I remember thinking that, uh, you know, the third one, I looked it up, when's it coming out? It's like, well, she's going to be almost eight. Wow, she's going to be so old. But mm, here we are. <laughs> Time and movie franchises just keep pushing, pushing on, you know? Genevieve, how about you? You know, with end of year list and then awards season, we just got through a big couple months focused on very timely, you know, 2018, 2019 specific movies. So I want to take a break from that and offer a recommendation with absolutely zero timely peg, other than that it was directed by a newly anointed Oscar winner, Spike Lee. Uh, but that's not the reason I'm recommending 
2009's Passing Strange, which is a filmed version of the final Broadway performances of the pop rock musical of the same name. Uh, that Tony-nominated musical was conceived and written by Stu, the musician behind another musical I just saw here in Chicago called The Total Bent, which I'd love to recommend to our local listeners, but it will unfortunately have just closed by the time you hear this. Uh, but seeing that really put me in the mood to revisit Passing Strange, which I did by forcing upon my fiancé the other night. And uh, while I've always liked this film, I'd previously connected to it on much more on the level of my appreciation for Passing Strange, the musical, which is, sort for those of you who don't know, sort of a buildings roman center on the quest for meaning and authenticity and creation with the present day student narrating the actions of his younger self and occasionally interacting directly with the actor who plays him, Daniel Breaker. Uh, but this time around, I took better note of how Lee directs this piece and how impressively it blends the two mediums of film and theater. Uh, Passing Strange is not an especially cinematic production. Uh, the sets, props, and costuming are minimal, and the majority of the actors play multiple roles. So there is not a lot of spectacle to fall back on outside of the music and performances, uh, which Lee captures in a really dynamic way. With film theater, I often get annoyed when the camera moves around too much or doesn't give a full enough view of the stage. But this production in particular is really well suited to a more roving camera and the occasional foray into more experimental or abstract framing. Uh, for a long time, this movie has been sort of my go-to example of how a filmed play can be done successfully, and I stand by that now, but I also kind of feel now that it's the result of a perfect combination of form and presentation that's pretty specific to Passing Strange. Um, if you haven't checked it out before, I'd highly recommend it, particularly if you love non-traditional musicals, which this definitely is. Uh, and if you have, it's definitely a good one to go back to and revisit every 10 years or so. So, Passing Strange. I remember loving that film so much, like while being not entirely convinced by the the direction, the the attempt to direct a filmed production of a live production. Uh, the content of the musical itself is just it's so intense. It's so emotional. The vision of a man standing on stage watching his younger self do the things that he did and confronting him and having another actor play that younger self so that confrontation can be more like vivid and and lived is just so relatable. Uh, while the, the, the story is so very specific to his life, there's just so much about that story that I think anybody could relate to. I, it's yeah. it's really beautiful. Yeah, there are several lines in that uh, show that just kind of knock me on my ass. The, the, the most resonant of late being uh, a line about you ever stop and think about like every direction your life has taken is based on the decisions made by a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm just like really feeling these days, but you know, we don't need to get into that here, but uh, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, Scott, what about you? I am a, a super fan of the German director, Christian Petzold. His last film was uh, Phoenix. He did a film before that called Barbara. Um, he also did uh, Jerichau and Yella. He, he, he makes movies often with this actress named Nina Haas, uh, who's terrific. Uh, she, he has a new movie out called Transit that uh, Nina Haas is not in uh, for once, uh, but it is quite brilliant. What he has done, which is, I think, quite audacious, is that um, he is taking this 1944 novel – uh, by an author named Anna Segers, um, that was about specifically a World War II story about a Jew who uh, escapes from the Nazis into France, heads all the way to Marseille, the port port city, 
during occupation and tries to find a way, along with a lot of other refugees, to asylum, basically, as the Germans are sort of encroaching on that territory. And what he's done here is just to move it to the present day, period. With no, you know, everything, the other details are the same. Uh, uh, so it's a very interesting thing where it's like, this is a Holocaust era story that he has just moved to, to the present without really changing a whole lot. I mean, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of Nazi garb or anything like that. There's just, there's a German occupying force, a fascist force that's advancing. And the way, the reason why he's, he's done that to make a drama about 21st century displacement, about, about our current global world of refugees. And, and uh, yet at the same time, it's done in the Petzold style. It's extremely subtle and sophisticated and, and glancing and very romantic. He's got a Hitchcockian touch. I mean, this is a story of dual identities, just like Phoenix was. So it's got that vertigo quality to it. I don't know. It's just entrancing and, and unique. And I love it. I think Petzold is, is, is a major, major director. And this film... I was kind of happy it comes out, uh, you know, the, the weekend right after the Oscars, and it just feels like heading into great stuff. The great, the great, the good stuff of 2019 is starting to come out, and, it, and for me, it starts with Transit, which I really loved. So, Music Rocks Films is putting it out, so it's going to be in uh, starts in New York and L.A. on uh, March 1st, and then sort of expands from there. So, I would recommend it highly. Cool. Well, first of all, have, have any of you seen Phoenix? Did you see Phoenix at all? Phoenix got the best. Phoenix. Phoenix has the best ending of any film in like the last decade, right, Keith? Phoenix is so good, yeah. And the, the, yeah, the ending's the right. best. Absolutely crushing, Not gonna argue incredible. With you. Uh, I mean, best of the last decade. Come on, I, I don't know. know. It's close. It's up there, though. I think it's up there. I think it's an instant classic. Uh, Tasha. Well, several months back, I recommended a little indie science fiction movie mm-hmm. called Prospect, and uh, at the time, it was just coming into theaters, but it had a very limited release, uh, and then it just kind of disappeared like a stone thrown into a, a well. It's about to be available on DVD, but it's also coming up on iTunes for people who prefer streaming uh, access. It doesn't seem like it's getting a whole lot of like marketing or, or distribution or like communication about it. Uh, go watch it, which is kind of my go-to for figuring out what platforms a film is on. Uh, it doesn't even list the movie. Amazon has the DVD, but isn't going to have it streaming. So you may be limited to watching it on iTunes. But a few people have reached out to me just based on that recommendation. Um, they've been looking for the movie and, and wanting to see it uh, because I was so enthused by it. Like it's it's grimy little DIY look at uh, a science fiction story, and particularly by the lead performance by Sophia Thatcher. So uh, I would recommend going to prospectthefilm.com and just like watching just the the loop of it's not even a, a trailer; it's just sort of like a loop of shots uh, that'll give you a sense for how beautifully this film is shot and and how well done it is. Um, but mostly I just wanted to let people know that uh, this movie that I talked about three months ago that I said everybody should see, now they have the opportunity to see, even if it didn't come to their town at the time. So your next picture show, the sequel. <laughs> In keeping with uh, that attitude of here's something that I think you should see that you mostly can't see, <laughs> there's a film coming out, a horror film that was at Sundance called uh, The Hole in the Ground. Generally well-reviewed. Uh, A24 picked it up. And I'm not 
clear on how much they're actually releasing it. It's not even listed. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Prospect uh, comes to streaming on, I believe, March 8th, DVD on March 5th. Hole in the Ground is going to be in theaters on March 1st in very limited release. So people in in big cities may have a chance to see this film uh, in the theater, which is kind of where it belongs. It's not that it's necessarily a visual spectacular, but it's one of those absorbing horror films that benefits immensely from atmosphere. It has a very Babadook feel to it. It's about a young mother uh, living alone with her son after escaping some sort of fairly vaguely delineated abuse situation. And they're making a life. And then the the son wanders into the, the woods nearby and comes back and she doesn't believe it's him. And everything falls out from that. It's one of those who's crazy here, what's really going on kind of stories. Uh, but it has the same sort of, of just deep, disturbing energy between a very young boy and his mother stuck in an isolated situation where they're experiencing something that nobody nobody can help them with, that any attempt to talk about what's going on, she knows full well will make her sound crazy. And there's a lot of disturbing stuff that happens around them that, that builds the tension. It goes in some directions that kind of leave me asking a lot of questions. There are a lot of undefined things about this movie. But if you if you go to horror movies for that just visceral thrill of I don't know what's going on, I don't know what's going to happen next, and I feel threatened, I feel the emotions of the people on screen really vividly and intently, I strongly recommend this film for that experience. Uh, it's the, I believe, first feature film uh, by writer-director Lee Cronin. It's called The Hole in the Ground, and you can see it, I think, briefly in theaters in big cities. It's A24, so it's certainly yeah. coming to some sort of streaming situation. It's, well, it, it was, it's one of the A24 movies that is part of their deal with DirecTV. So it's actually been available. If you have DirecTV, it's been available to you for the last month throughout. It, it debuted on the 31st of really? January on DirecTV, and then it's coming to theaters on the 1st of March. Huh wacky and then do it you know anything about it's like availability off direct tv I, 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 I don't i, I don't i mean so a lot of times those are accompanied by a vod re- release when when they finally hits theaters but i'm not sure if that's the deal with the whole of the ground or not i guess you just have to find out or, or just keep put it on your watch list if you have one and wait for it but i i'd like to see it i i do enjoy you that guys, particular genre releasing is getting so complicated it's really complicated <laughs> remember when you went to see a movie in a theater and then like nine months later it was on dvd and you bought it you put it on your shelf and never watched it again so simple nine months it's like just a lot of pregnancy it's like it came out a little shorter it, 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 wasn't no, it, it used to it used to be a long period longer. of time and now, right, people. now people people are pirating that that stuff if it's not available to them 30 seconds later Ah oh, well well the hole in the ground you can uh, achieve in one of a variety of ways if you have one of a variety of very specific access points uh, <laughs> prospect you yep. can just you can get on iTunes so good luck to you <laughs> okay <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out March 19th and 26th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? 
As Captain Marvel opens, protagonist Carol Danvers doesn't even know she's Carol Danvers. The latest film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is a science fiction action film, but also something of a mystery story that requires Danvers to piece together who she is, where she came from, and what's really real. That, along with the producers of Captain Marvel citing the high-concept sci-fi blockbusters of the 90s as an inspiration point for the film, put us in mind of another action-driven puzzle movie of that era. Total Recall. Directed by Paul Verhoeven and adapted from a Philip K. Dick story, the 1990 film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger as an ordinary guy who purchases an escape from reality and might have gotten more than he bargained for in the process. If you'd like to play along with our pairing, Total Recall is widely available for digital rental and streaming, and Captain Marvel is in theaters now. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of White Men Can't Jump, High Flying Bird, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am the deputy TV editor at vulture.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? Oh, I'm all over the place. I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. You can, I need to update my website. It's keithphips.com. But you can read my writing at Vulture, where Genevieve occasionally lets me write about True Detective. <laughs> and, oh, gosh, uh, Polygon, where I wrote about How to Train Your Dragons, The Verge, where I'm about to write about something for Tasha. And, uh, oh, just just all kinds <laughs> of wonderful places. And just Google <laughs> so him. So that's me. Google, Google, Google me. Hey, and if you want me to write for you, I'm not too hard to find. Um, Tasha, how about you? I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. You can find me writing about television and film over there. I was just on the Slash Film Podcast. You can hear me talking about uh, more about High Flying Bird and about Isn't It Romantic and about How to Train Your Dragon 3 and a whole and the Oscars and a whole bunch of other stuff over there. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Scott? You can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at the New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, and other outlets. I've got a very big profile of the filmmaker Greg Araki. Uh, up at the ringer so check that out <laughs> it's funny because i'm recording this i haven't actually written it yet but by the time you hear it it'll be up there and hopefully uh it'll be not terrible so uh, uh please check that out um you can stay updated on the next picture show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via twitter at next picture pod and via facebook at facebook.com slash next picture show and if you haven't subscribed to the show on apple podcasts already please consider it Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence, more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in the next time. Rest in peace to Howdy gold rushes here, we have a storm. Fall goes down and still get fouled in the stand, man. That's how we're supposed to be. Yeah. Catch me, I'm ballin', catch me, I'm ballin', catch me like spawlin', catch me like spawlin'. The D and D, DMC, vitamin like GNC. Catch me, I'm ballin', catch me, I'm ballin', catch me like spawlin', catch me like spawlin'. A B B and A L C, man, stay on the J O B. 